Welcome to the Executive Suite, a podcast by the American Chamber of Commerce in Taiwan. My name is Julia Bergstrom. I'm the senior editor of Topics, our monthly magazine diving deep into the business world here. Each month, I sit down with a leading figure in the community to discuss management and gain insights that can help all of us in our careers. For our very first episode, I'm really excited to sit here with Sandra Oudkirk, director of AIT or the American Institute in Taiwan. Oudkirk is a seasoned diplomat whose career has taken her to Turkey, Ireland, Jamaica, China, and of course Taiwan. She has been at the helm of AIT during a particularly eventful time for Taiwan-U.S. relations. On top of which, she's the first woman to hold this post. Very welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. This is not the first time I see you. It's the first time I speak with you. <laughs> But the first time I saw you was at an event in 2021 when you were on stage holding a speech, and one of our younger team members leaned into me and said, "Sandra Alkirk is such a rock star." <laughs> Have you had any moments in your career that made you go, "You know what? Actually." I am kind of a rock star. So I have to say, and now that I know what event that was, I was definitely not a rock star because it was first <laughs> thing in the morning, and I believe rock stars are usually asleep then. But I will say, I haven't really had an experience in my career where I've thought, "Wow, I am a rock star." But I do have a story I'd like to tell you about how I realized, sort of fairly early in my career, how important it is to be an American diplomat. So I was assigned to Istanbul, Turkey, and someone from the United States was supposed to come and give a speech on the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and he unfortunately had a medical incident at the airport,、oh, and、wow. so could not give his speech. And I got called and told, Sandra, in 36 hours, you are giving the speech. So fortunately, he had a beautiful PowerPoint. I learned all about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. I stood up there on a stage in front of this enormous energy conference and said things like, "My government believes, my government does." And while that was going on, I realized I am the face of the U.S. government to hundreds of people here, and they tell you this starting at very beginning training. But I think it doesn't really sink in、mm. until you have to do something public like that. So I did not feel like a rock star. You'll note I did not demand that you give me M and M's with all the green ones picked out or anything like that, but I did feel sort of the I would say actually awesome import、mm. of my job at that moment. All right, yeah, I'm happy you didn't ask for all green M and M's because <laughs> our time is limited. But I'm jokingly asking this because I do think a lot of people imagine the life of a diplomat to be quite glamorous, and as you said, it has a lot of. Impetus、mm -hmm. and importance, but what was it that drew you to apply for the State Department? Well, so I'm a graduate of Georgetown University's School、mm -hmm. of Foreign Service, and effectively, if you are a U.S. citizen who's a SFS grad, you take the Foreign Service exam. There's a massive amount of peer pressure. People kind of look at you if you're not planning on taking the test. Like, are you actually a Russian sleeper agent? <laughs> Is perhaps your mother a mafia hitman? You know, what I mean,、yeah. it really everyone does it. And you know, I am forever thankful that my now husband, who was my then boyfriend,、mm. convinced me to take the test. 
and, you know, stayed in a relationship with me when I passed and he didn't um, because we are now both in the Foreign Service. We've been in the Foreign Service for me for 30 years, him for more than 25, married pretty much the whole time. And it's wow. been great. That's fantastic. It's good to have a supportive uh, partner with you as well who understands what you want to do. But then what made you want to study uh, at Georgetown? Well, I was always interested in the sort of humanities, the English history government side of things. My mother is a retired biology teacher to mm. her great disappointment. None of her children went into the sciences. And I was looking at schools on the East Coast, and Georgetown had a really interesting program. It's not too far from where I grew up. It's far enough that you have to fly in an airplane, but not so far that you can't come home for Thanksgiving. So it was kind of the ideal match. Okay, perfect. So you took the test, and you entered the State Department in 1991, so over 30 years ago now. And you've been based on three different continents since then. But AIT in particular is quite unique, right? Because it's not an official embassy, right? So for those who don't really know what you guys do, could you give us a brief introduction of what it is that AIT does? So AIT, we are responsible for managing the unofficial relationship between the United States and Taiwan and the full breadth of that relationship. So our priorities span defense and security, helping Taiwan you know, prepare its self-defense, to things like semiconductor and high-tech supply chains, to supporting Taiwan's effort to maintain and expand its international space in the face of PRC pressure, and then more traditional goals like maintaining and enhancing our already excellent people-to-people -people and economic relationships. Mm. And you work quite closely with the private sector, right? You have a few events and other activities together with private sector actors. So as the head of all this machinery, do you see any ways that the private sector and the public sector can work better together to address international issues and to strengthen the ties between the partners? Sure. I'm glad you asked that. I am a State Department economics officer. Mm -hmm. So throughout my career, from the very early days, even before I was talking about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in Istanbul, I had been working with AmCham and the U.S. business community overseas. Historically, we do a lot. Of course, Taiwan is a major trading partner for the United States. It's a major market for agricultural products, major source of new foreign direct investment into the United States. So our linkages with the private sector here, both the American private sector and Taiwan's private sector are very high. Mm. One thing that I have personally been working to build on and expand is actually on the, I would call it employment, personnel, human resources side mm. of things. American companies in Taiwan are some of the largest investors in Taiwan. Mm. They like AIT, which also has hundreds of employees, work to take U.S. employment practices and standards mm. and bring them to a Taiwan workforce. And the United States and Taiwan have a lot of shared values, but we also have a different culture and we have different experiences. And so learning from American companies' experiences in mapping sort of diversity, inclusivity, those kinds of equal employment opportunity standards to the Taiwan workplace culture is something that I'd really like to do more of. Wow, that's a good goal to have and a good ambition to work toward. And 
I mean, you're here now at a time when Taiwan-U.S. relations is really growing, and there are a lot of exciting things happening. Taiwan has become the United States' eighth largest trading partner, and we have negotiations going on between the United States and Taiwan. So, how can we build on that now? What areas can Taiwan and U.S. work in to deepen our economic ties? So, like you said, our economic ties are already great. Mm. And we we don't have a lot of friction in our relationship, mm. but there are certainly areas we'd love to see more Taiwan companies investing in the United States. I think the announcements that came at the big Select USA summit last summer, both the decision by Global Wafers to invest in a silicon wafer production facility in Texas. And MediaTek's announcement about the R&D linkup with Purdue University are great examples mm. of the kind of relationships that we'd like to foster. Mm. A U.S. company, Micron, is the largest foreign direct investor in Taiwan. They employ more than 10,000 people here. So I think building on that is really important. Mm. And this relationship has definitely developed since the first time you were here, right? Because one of your first postings was in Taipei at the consular section, if I remember correctly. That's right. So I was at my first overseas assignment was at the old AIT building on Shinny Road. Mm. I spent two years here from 92 to 94. I issued tourist visas and I did what we call American citizen services, Mm. which is everything from renewing passports to visiting American prisoners in jail. Wow. Do you know how many passports you renewed in two years? Oh, my. We did a lot. And it was really, I couldn't tell you how many. It was pretty often. Mm. And a lot of them were just adorable. They were little kids who'd been born in the United States when their parents were graduate students. Mm. And they'd come in and they'd have to bring a picture of the child from every year. And it was invariably blowing up birthday candles or a Halloween costume. So it was really at a an enjoyable thing to do. That's very endearing. Mm-hmm. But so apart from the new building, you have a fantastic new location. What else has changed about AIT since you were first here? Well, we've definitely grown, hmm. both in the size of the building and in the number of staff. We have always had the Foreign Services second year Mandarin language studies program here in mm-hmm. Taiwan. With the new building, we moved it down from their old location on Yangmishan into the building with us. So it's great to have full-time language students in the building. They add a little bit of informality to what could otherwise be a very formal business. Mm. The other thing is, and this is a change from what I did when I was here before, is Taiwan now has the visa waiver. So we used to have these huge lines spilling out into the literally into the street. Mm. Um, and now it's really everything's by appointment. It's a pretty efficient operation, and the numbers are much, much lower in terms of the people who need to actually come in and apply for a visa. But before you came to Taiwan, you've held various positions of leadership, right, in different departments as well. How would you say your management style has developed over the years? Do you have a special or do you have a particular philosophy that you follow? So I think the most difficult part of growing from being a subject matter expert yourself, Mm -hmm. being personally responsible for what you know, to being someone who manages and then now in my situation leads teams of subject matter experts Mm -hmm. is being willing to let go of that grasp of detail. 
So for me, that came when I was working as the trade unit chief at the American Embassy in Beijing. Up until then, even though I supervised people, mm. I was more or less able to keep most of the detail in my own head. I can tell you, the U.S. PRC economic relationship does not fit in anyone's head. You can't. It is not physically possible to keep up with everything that's written on it. And it was a really difficult transition for me. Mm. Um, it involves learning to delegate, learning the role of a manager to mm. sort of smooth the way for your team rather than doing your team's work. I think it's a transition that is an important part of professional development because some people successfully make that transition and other people really struggle with it. And I will admit I was one of those. I found it very hard. Mm -hmm. So that's something you've kind of learned to let go of the details. That makes for a successful manager. But what would you say makes for a successful diplomat? What kind of characteristics <laughs> do you need? So I have two sort of analogies that were given to me when I was a very, very junior diplomat. Mm. And the first was that a diplomat needs to be like a transistor radio. Okay. You need to be able to both transmit and receive. And if you only do one, you're not going to be successful. Mm -hmm. You have to both be able to say to your host, this is what Washington thinks. This is what Washington wants. But you also need to be able to honestly, clearly, and in a timely fashion, go back home to Washington and say, this is what the partner thinks. This is what they want. This is what they expect. This is the context here. And being that two-way conduit is an absolutely essential part of diplomacy. Mm. The other story is I had a very, very senior diplomat tell me when I was very early in my career that the key sort of personality trait for diplomacy was relentlessness. Okay. You had to be relentlessly polite, relentlessly persistent, kind of like a velvet-coated steamroller. All right. That's a good <laughs> metaphor. I like it. And how about language? Because you're trilingual, right? You speak Turkish, Chinese, and English? Well, I really speak English. And if anyone asks me what, what language you speak fluently, the only one I speak fluently is English. But I have a conversational ability in both Mandarin and Turkish. My Mandarin is much better right now than my Turkish. Mm. Both of them were learned as adults. So I came into the Foreign Service with a really quite minimal amount of French, which is completely atrophied to nothing, mm -hmm. and a fairly basic understanding of Mandarin. And I worked throughout my career to build and maintain that Mandarin and then to acquire Turkish. Oh, wow. And so you learned it on the job. Well, so like I said, we have the second year Mandarin language program yeah. housed at AIT. The State Department is one of the few foreign services in the world that actually trains diplomats in languages mm -hmm. as opposed to bringing them in with the expectation that they're already bilingual or trilingual. So our system will give people six months, a year, two years, depending on the difficulty of the language and the sort of needs of the job that you're going to, to full-time study a language mm. with the expectation that you come out of it with a certain level of proficiency. You have to take a test. All right. And do you use your Chinese now that you're stationed in Taiwan at all? So I do. I will admit the Mandarin that I use tends to be more conversational than yeah. full-on professional. And that has a lot to do both with my job and with my actual language abilities. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm always really impressed by people who have 
a super high level of proficiency in a language, any language. Yeah. Because I know myself how difficult that is to acquire and maintain. Yeah. How about when you travel around the island? Oh, I I use my Mandarin on people all the time, whether they like it or not. (laughs) And we've also noticed you're a keen cyclist. Is that how you get around? Is that your preferred method of uh, seeing Taiwan? Well, I have been cycling a few times here. I will admit I seem to go on long cycle trips in the rain only, Mm. unlike the weather today, which is gorgeous. But no, actually, my preferred mode of transportation is whatever is the most convenient. I walk a lot. I take the MRT. Mm. I love the high-speed rail. I do cycle. The cycling paths by the river are amazing. Yeah, they really are. They're beautiful. So... Coming back to your position now and your job and your duties, I think a lot of people have a hard time imagining what exactly it is you do as the director of the American Institute in Taiwan. So could you take us briefly through what an average week looks like for you? I can't really do an average week because my weeks change greatly, but I think over time. So Mm. I've been here now a year and a half. And I would say over time, my work days are divided pretty much into thirds. Mm. So about a third of my time is spent fully outward facing and publicly outward facing. And that includes travel to Kaohsiung, Taichung, Tainan, doing what I'm doing right now, talking to you, making speeches at openings or at panel discussions, really very outward facing. Another third of my time is spent on internal AIT leadership and management. Mm -hmm. We have lots of meetings. We have committee meetings. We do work internally on personnel and emergency preparedness and budgets. And that's a really important part of my job. And then there's another third that's spent on what I would call policy formulation and implementation. Okay. Communicating back to Washington communicating with our hosts and partner interlocutors here, that transistor radio thing. Mm. This is what we think. This is what they think. Mm. And doing that communication, managing that communication back and forth. And how do you manage that when there are so many complementary, but also many competing interests, right, that you have to deal with different departments, different states, different actors? How do you manage all those competing interests? It's a lot of work, but we have a really good staff and a really good team. Mm -hmm. And we have people who work specifically on, say, the trade issue or the finance issue, we spent a lot of time looking at local elections, you know, all of the things that would be interesting back to Washington. And similarly, communicating from D.C. here to Taipei, it's also divided by sector or by topic, yeah. people who work on different topics. I heard you also travel sometimes to do groundbreaking ceremonies and other support in the United States, right? Yes. So, well, we're recording this in advance of when it's going to be played. So I am planning Mm. to go back to the United States in early December Mm. for the Global Wafer Groundbreaking and the TSMC Grand Opening. So Mm. by the time this is released, Mm. I will have already done that. It's fantastic. There is a lot happening with the semiconductor industry exchange between the United States and Taiwan, right? 
Is that the key sector or are there more key sectors where we are especially good collaborators? So we're especially good collaborators in semiconductor and high tech. We are Mm. also especially good collaborators in food and agriculture. Mm. So you noted earlier that Taiwan is the United States' eighth largest trading partner. Taiwan is also our sixth largest market for agricultural goods. Wow. That's a a high number. It is a really high number. Now, a lot of difficult tasks, right? Being the director, working with all these partners. What motivates you to go into your office and deliver on top every single day? I love my job. I cannot think of any job in the world that I would rather be doing than the one I have right now. Mm -hmm. And I love being an American diplomat. Uh, One of the things I love about it is every couple of years, you change the topic of what you're working on. So you have your job. Mm -hmm. So I've had the same job being an American Foreign Service officer since 1991. Mm. But I have done different things over that time. And even though I said earlier I need to step away from the details, I love the details. And I love learning about different things. So I have joked with many people that by the time I leave Taiwan, I will have the equivalent of a master's degree in semiconductors. Wow. Something that I knew very little about before I – I mean, I knew they existed, but that was about it. Now I have been inside fabs. I have looked at things being made. I have had lengthy discussions about photolithography, a process that I was not aware existed before I came here. And so it's important to know that you learn these new things. In an earlier job, I worked on, you know, oil and gas. Mm. So a completely different subject – And I've worked on, even earlier, worked on counter-ISIL oil sanctions. Mm. So the changing topics really keeps the job lively and interesting. Definitely. I think a lot of people listening to this might be inspired to look into a career in diplomacy themselves or working for the Foreign Service. What advice would you like to give young professionals who are interested in this type of career? So the Foreign Service exam is the way we come in. It's an exam-based process. You first take a written test. If you pass the written test, you move on to the oral examination. I'm not sure what the process is for Taiwan, but I do know that their training structure is very similar to the U.S. training structure. Actually, coincidentally, Mm -hmm. earlier today, I was at their equivalent of our Foreign Service Institute. So we both have well-set-up programs that train in languages. Mm -hmm. So if you are a U.S. citizen, I recommend you go on to usajobs.gov Mm -hmm. and look up Foreign Service Officer Test. All right. That's very suiting advice. So, but regardless if you want to work in the business world Mm -hmm. or in diplomacy or any other career, a lot of people these days need to move around, something that you're quite Mm -hmm. used to, right? Do you have any tips for how to assimilate and adapt to new cultures? So I would say you need to be open and flexible, open to new experiences, flexible to do things that maybe you didn't expect that you were going to be doing. Mm. I jokingly tell people when I came here 30 years ago, I had taken three years of university Mandarin. I had taken six months of Mandarin at our Foreign Service Institute. I knew how to say things like thermonuclear weapon. Oh, wow. I did not know how to say many food words. And I woke up the first morning that I was here and I thought, well, if I'm going to eat, I have to talk. 
And at that point, this was pre-cell phone, so you couldn't just look it up on Google Translate. I had to go out there and go to sort of the convenience store, the grocery store, and shake the dairy products, trying to guess what was milk and what was yogurt. Sometimes I bought things that I didn't expect to buy, but it was all okay. It all worked out in the end. Right. All right. So just dare to try new things, I guess. Dare to try new things and actually dare to fail. Mm -hmm. Dare to not be the smartest person in the room. Dare to speak with bad grammar. Okay. Dare to try. Because if you don't try... You won't succeed. Definitely. That's why I'm happy you you were willing to be our guinea pig for our first try <laughs> in podcasting. I think it's a good reflection of the relationship that the American Chamber and the American Institute in Taiwan has. A lot of people actually confuse us and they think that Amcham is a part of AIT, but I'm very happy that we have this relationship where we can meet and talk and help each other out. Before I let you go, I want to give you a really hard-hitting question. We do have an issue at the Amcham office with the sweets. We eat way too many of them. So it's always on my mind. And so I have to ask you, what American dessert do you think everyone should try at least once? Okay. So I will tell you, I will give you a twofold answer because I am basking in the reflected glory of Amcham. Okay. Because if everyone thinks Amcham is part of AIT, it just makes AIT look better. (laughs) Um, So first I will tell you, pumpkin pie, don't eat it. It's bad. I don't like it. It's my least favorite dessert. (laughs) Um, Pumpkin everything else is fine. Pumpkin pie, not good. Yeah. Pecan pie, on the other hand, is to my mind the quintessential American dessert. Yeah. Pecans are a Native American nut. They grow in Central and South America as well, but they're a you know, new world food. Yeah. Pecan pie evokes Thanksgiving and Christmas to me. Another major ingredient in pecan pie is a sweetener that I think is found nowhere else on the planet but the United States, Cairo syrup. Okay. Uh, you can also make the pie with maple syrup, which is another new world sort of food product. Mm. So definitely pecan pie. Wow. This is kind of funny. I'm almost scared to look at James, our communications manager, who's sitting in the room with us, because he did say to me, you should give her a pecan pie. (laughs) But I decided that I would give you as a thank you for coming with us my favorite American dessert, which is the New York cheesecake. Oh, that's also a very good one. And it even has an American name in it. Yes, exactly. So it's my little thank you gift to you for being here. And uh, hopefully it can give you energy for your next important endeavor. Yeah. Thank you very much. That's amazing. Yeah, I hope you like it. Yeah, it's (laughs) it's pretty American-sized, right? (laughs) But yeah, thank you so much for joining us today and letting everyone get to know you a little bit better. Great. Well, thank you for having me here. I'm delighted to be your guinea pig, and I'm sure you will be a great success. Thank you very much. This was the first episode of The Executive Suite, an audio version of one of the many things we cover each month in topics from the American Chamber of Commerce in Taiwan. We are now in print, online, and wherever good podcasts are found. In this feed, we will also be bringing you monthly updates on the major domestic and international beats moving Taiwan. This program was created with help from Ghost Island Media, Taiwan's leading podcast label. Make sure you check out their other shows. I'm Julia Bergstrom, and I'll see you next month.